Our first scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 1. And uh, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 5 and 26 to 31. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, I'll begin to read verses 1 to 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Then in verses 6 through 25, we see the continuing acts of God's creation. And now I would like you to look with me at verse 26, where we see God's culminating act of creation. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, church. This morning, I will be reading from Genesis 2, 5 through 9, and then verses 15 through 25. So I'll give you a moment to look for those in your Bible. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant in the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work on the ground. And the mist was going up from the land, and it was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put, a man, or put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. 
The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now we'll go down to verse 15 through 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the garden the Lord took, or the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. We turn now to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read 4 through 21. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Would you stand again? Thank you, David. Good morning. Again, all right, I said that already. I'm David. Said that already too, all right. I uh, get to preach through Genesis 1 through 5 this morning, which you might be like, we've already done that, I think. You're right, if you were uh, here. <laughs> uh, and I get to do it in, you know, 40 minutes instead of eight weeks. So, all right, buckle up. Um, <laughs> it should be a good morning, though. I, I hope that as we prepare to head back into Genesis, this will help reorient us in seeing how the story was going before we took this break at Christmas time. Growing up, I attended the church where my dad was the pastor, and uh, that meant that I attended church on Sunday mornings as well as Sunday evenings, because that's what real Christians did back then. Um, <laughs> just kidding, sorry. Um, occasionally, <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean to offend you guys. <laughs> occasionally, in the evening service, I would tell my mom that I was too tired, and that I would, you know, try to take a nap on the pew. Um, but the rule was, if I did that, then I had to go straight to bed when I went home. Not as punishment, but just pure logic. Like, if you can't stay awake in church, obviously you're too tired for anything else. So I didn't, didn't try that too many times. Um, so during the evening service, I had to figure out something to keep me occupied. And I know what you might be thinking. You might think, like, why don't you listen to your father and take in his wisdom and, you know, grow. And that just never really seemed like a good option to me, so... A few friends and I had a sort of contest. We would we'd pick out a few words that uh, <laughs> my dad said often, and then we would take a tally, see how many times he might say a particular word on a given night. Some of them might be good words like God, but we might also chase after how many times he said um in a sermon, because that's always fun. Um, <laughs> I didn't plan that one. <laughs> It helped me listen to maybe the words he was saying, but I don't know that it really helped me hear the things that he was saying. All of that to say, this morning you may notice things are a little different. There's no slides up on the screen. There's no notes for you to fill in the blank. Um, we're going to do things a little different, but if you are like, I absolutely have to write something down, then maybe you should just take a tally of the words I say. <laughs> I'm going to encourage you as we head into this message that you just go ahead, put your pen down, and imagine with View the first five chapters of Genesis. We're going to walk through this, and hopefully, um, hopefully it'll become really alive in your minds. 
I was going to ask you to start the sermon by closing your eyes and imagining with me, but then I realized that presented an opportunity for some of you to fall asleep, so we won't do that. Keep your eyes open and imagine this. Picture a beautiful, dark night sky, the kind that you can only find like way out in the country, far away from street lights, far away from neighbor's lights, like just perfect darkness. And when you look up, like you can see every star in the sky. The Milky Way is just washed across the sky. And, and out there, it's amazing because the moon seems to be incredibly bright. You can lights up where you are, lights up what you can see. And now slowly peel those layers back. Take those stars away. Take the moon away. Milky Way's gone. Just utter darkness. Nothing at all. In fact, the ground you're laying on doesn't even exist. There's no air, no oxygen, no nitrogen. Nothing. And this is where we find ourselves in the opening verses of Genesis. Nothing but God. The eternal, ever-existing, all-powerful God who's existed for all time and nothing else. No matter And then God speaks, and as he speaks, matter comes into existence, and we're going to see slowly chaos, and darkness is transformed into light, and beauty, and order, as he creates a place for us to live. As God speaks, things start happening. The first thing he does is he calls light into existence. The very concept of light doesn't exist outside of the command of God. Something that we take for granted as obviously a part of our universe. And then he starts speaking again and, and he starts separating the waters in the earth and creating an atmosphere to perfectly protect this planet from the things that are going on outside of it. And he, he creates the perfect ratio of gases inside of this atmosphere to, for us to breathe. Did you know that if there's too much oxygen in the atmosphere, it actually is toxic in your system and can lead to blindness. God perfectly creates a place that's designed for humanity to thrive in. The next day, he speaks and he drives the oceans back into their places. Up to this point, the world has just been a globe of water, but he speaks and the oceans are pushed back. The oceans are one of my favorite places on earth because they are just so powerful. The fact that water can shape rocks, tear away at these spaces, and and not to be morbid, but the fact that you can just be a few feet out of place and even the strongest of swimmers has no chance against the ocean. The ocean is this incredibly powerful force and it bows to the word of the Lord. When God speaks, the oceans know their limits. They don't cross them. Dry ground is produced as he does this, and he calls forth every kind of plant that you can imagine. And slowly, we see chaos and darkness being transformed into order and beauty and a place where humanity can thrive. He he exhales, and the stars and the planets are born. Psalm 33 is one of my favorite psalms, and says there that by the word of his mouth, all the heavens were made, and by his breath, all their starry hosts. Just imagining God breathing out and the explosions that took place. One of my favorite parts of the 4th of July 
is laying on the ground during the big fireworks show over by Trost and feeling the thud in my chest of those, like the biggest fireworks. And then to imagine in comparison as God creates stars, those explosions are puny and tiny in comparison. To be within a million miles of one of the stars that he created and you would instantly combust, burn up, be gone. He's creating order and beauty. Even as he puts these stars into space, he creates our seasons for us. He creates the way that we understand time. Uh, he creates order. He, he creates an ability for us to find our way in the darkness. It's incredible what he's done in this world. Methodologically creating a place that's hospitable for life. Every detail perfect for us to thrive. And then over the next two days, of creation, he speaks and life explodes forth from him. First, he, he speaks and birds are like shooting out into the air like I can only imagine what that looked like, like hummingbirds and eagles and everything in between. He speaks and the oceans are filled, swarming with fish and other creatures. He speaks again and the very ground produces animals. Because when God speaks, all matter obeys. Most of us can't get anything to obey us when we speak. When God speaks, like the very molecules of the world obey and form life. And then as we come towards the end of that sixth day of creation, God turns in and has a conversation with himself. Father, Son, and Spirit decide to make this final piece unique. This last creature will be made in his image, in his likeness. Humanity will be his representatives on this earth. He's going to give them a unique awareness and consciousness no other creature has. He gives them an ability to reason and to make moral choices. He gives us the ability to have relationships in a really distinct way than any other creature on this planet. God sent humans on earth as his representatives, and representing him well is the core purpose of humanity, both to each other and to the planet that he's made. And at the end of all this creation, God looks at it and he says, this is very good. And in fact, as he goes through this entire process again and again, he's saying, this is good, this is good, this is good. He's enjoying what he's made. He knows that it's beautiful. He knows that it is something to be excited about, to rejoice in. And then as he looks at his perfect creation on day seven, he sits back. He sits back and he rests, just enjoying what he's made. And then Genesis takes a little shift in perspective. And in Genesis 2, we view a portion of creation again from the perspective of humanity said that the ground was unruly at this time because there wasn't rain yet and God hadn't yet formed man to manage it. And so God forms Adam from the dust. Forms him from the dust and then God himself breathes into his lungs life and spirit. He takes Adam and he places him 
into this garden, this beautiful garden that he's made. And in the center of this garden, he, he places two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This place is the most perfect part of creation that you can imagine. Beyond beautiful, filled with amazing food for us to eat and enjoy. That's where he places Adam. And he gives Adam work to do. Take care of it. Tend it. And Adam is successful. Like, he goes, he works in the garden every day, and, and everything works the way that it's supposed to, and he's able to produce everything that he wants to, and, and it's good. And as he places Adam into this beautiful life, God calls on Adam, simply trust me. I've given you everything you could possibly need and want for health and success in life. Trust me when I tell you this, this one thing is not for you to partake of. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not for your good. That's for you to avoid. The God who created Adam, who breathed into his lungs, gave him everything, asks him, simply trust and obey me. That's all I ask of you. And then as God looks at Adam, he knows for certain this man needs a mate. He's made for relationship. And so after parading all of the animals in front of Adam, having him call, call them by name, and, and in that process, showing Adam how desperately he really does need someone to call his own, after all that, he takes Adam, and as Adam sleeps, he removes a bone from his side, and he creates Eve from it. And as Adam, as God presents the woman to Adam, Adam, like, responds. He cries out in song, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, like, this is what I've been waiting for. This is really, really good. God made humanity for relationship, and then he gives us each other, and he gives us himself. He's continuing to shower blessing after blessing on Adam. And as we come to the end of chapter 2, we see Adam and Eve living in perfect vulnerability, perfect happiness, perfect success, hiding nothing from each other, nothing from God. We don't know how long this goes on, but then we see an unfortunate shift take place as we head into Genesis chapter 3. Satan, who takes on the form of a snake, finds his way into the garden and approaches the lucky couple with a few questions. His questions are essentially this. Why doesn't God want you to be happy? Why doesn't God want you to succeed? Why doesn't God want you to be the best that you can be? And then he says, I have an answer for you. I know just what's going on. God doesn't want you to become too powerful. God is trying to control you because he knows if you eat of that tree, you're going to become like him, knowing both good and evil. And I have no other explanation other than their heads, their brains just like fall out of the back of their heads at that moment. 
We have to understand this is the God who speaks and who matters, matter obeys him. And the God who's in a close relationship with these people. The God who's given them everything. Showered them with amazing gifts. Satan says, he's holding out on you. He's not giving you what you want, what you need to be happy. And unfortunately, Adam and Eve take the bait, hook, line, and sinker. They begin to twist God's words, question his intentions, and they move directly towards the one thing that he had told them, this isn't for you, this won't be for your good. As Eve stares at the tree, listens to the lies of that ancient serpent, the devil, she begins to make up her mind. She sees that the tree is delightful. It looks fantastic, and she just wants some. And how could a good God, how could a good God keep her from that, right? How could a good God keep her from what she wanted, what she needed for happiness? It was cruel of God to do that, Eve says. How could she go on any longer? And all the while, while this is happening, Adam's standing by, allowing or maybe even encouraging his wife to call into question the character of this God who's been incredibly generous to them. They reach out, they eat the fruit together, and in an instant, death enters the world. Death of relationships, death of hope, and ultimately death of the body. Instead of perfect vulnerability and deep intimacy relationship with each other, in their relationships with each other and God, they cover themselves, separate from each other, and they hide from God. They now feel shame, and it's ravaged the human race ever since. God's goodness and his blessing upon humanity shows how utterly foolish it is to reject his authority. He's been so good, it's crazy to fail to trust him. My favorite teacher at Multnomah is a professor by the name of Jay. He happens to be a fairly abrasive guy, uh, and I've found over my life I tend to get along well with abrasive people, so if we're friends, I don't know, just keep that in mind. But uh, <laughs> Jay doesn't pull any punches. And that's what I love about him as a teacher. He's not simply willing to let me off the hook because I'm frustrated, but he pushes me to my limits in the way that I'm thinking. One of the things that he says regularly as he's, he's pushing students to communicate theological truth, communicate what they believe, and then he often responds to them with this. But I am thoroughly convinced you do not believe that. But I'm convinced you don't believe that because when you believe something, it leads you to act a certain way. And I'm certain that we can see all of our sins in that. You say that you believe God is good, that he's generous and loving, but I'm convinced you really don't believe that. All of our sinful actions, my sinful actions, your sinful actions, they're all rooted in unbelief and ungratefulness. God has been so good to you. And you might be saying this morning, David, you don't know what I've been through. God has not been good to me. And, and we know each other. I hope you can see that's not where I'm coming from. 
Um, I know that many of you have experienced incredible pain in your life. But everything we have is a gift from God. Sometimes we forget that, but you do not deserve the life that you have. You don't deserve the air that is in your lungs. You don't deserve life on this incredible, beautiful planet. You don't deserve food on your table. You don't deserve a house to live in. I don't say that with a cold heart. I say that with a reminder. Absolutely have things to be grateful for. And God absolutely has been good to you and has showered incredible gifts upon you. When we say that we believe God's good and loving and generous, but we act another way, it reveals we don't truly believe that. The root of the problem is is what we believe about God. Too often our heart says, God doesn't know what's best for me. God doesn't want me to succeed. He doesn't want me to be happy because if he did, my circumstances would be different than they are. God, how dare you call me to forgive that person? You don't know what they did to me. Or God, if you, if you knew what was good for me, if you wanted me to be happy, then you'd be okay with the fact that I was living with my girlfriend or watching pornography. It's all rooted in the idea that God doesn't want me to be happy. And when we think that, we're revealing our true beliefs about God's goodness. God, if you knew the stress I had to deal with, you would understand why I struggle with gluttony. Or how about this? If you wanted my kids to succeed as badly as I did, you'd understand why I struggle with greed. I just want to give them a better life. God, don't you want them to have a better life? If you knew what I had to put up with, At work, you'd understand why I lie. The only way to do things, God, you haven't been good to me. All of our sins are rooted, and I could go on. The list is really, really, really long. So if I missed all of yours, don't think you're off the hook. (laughs) Oh, where are your sins? Where in your life does it reveal that you tell God, no, you're not good enough for me? You don't know what's best for me, and I can't trust you because of that. As the story of Genesis continues, we see something really beautiful happen. God comes to Adam and Eve. He pursues them as they hide in their new shabby clothes that they've put together out of fig leaves. They're hiding from his presence. He comes to them. He asks them, what's wrong? God reaches out in love and he calls his children home, but as we see in Genesis 3, they're not quite ready yet. Adam is quick to shift the blame. Uh, You can almost imagine it. The, The woman that he was rejoicing over just a few verses earlier, and now he's like, I knew she was trouble from the moment I saw her. God, I cannot believe you did this to me. That woman, it's her fault. And then Eve quickly shifts the blame over to Satan. And at first glance, we're like, well, yeah, I mean, like, 
kind of makes sense. Satan's a bad dude, and, and he probably is pretty tricky. But you have to remember, this is happening in the context of the beauty that God has poured out upon them. There's no excuse for sin. They make excuses. They rationalize. All the while, God listens patiently. Then he responds. Life will be different now. Life won't be the same. His first response is this. Satan, know this. There's always going to be war between my people and you. And as that war continues, you can expect one day your defeat will come from the line of the very woman that you tempted. One is coming who will crush you and destroy you. You'll never have a word to say again. God promises hope. And then he turns to his people, Adam and Eve, and he defines a new way of life for them. Not free from his blessing, still showered in his blessing. But in the absence of trust for him, life will be difficult. God warns them of the pain and struggle that they're now going to experience. Relationships are no longer going to be perfect and intimate. There's going to be struggle in every relationship that's meaningful. God curses the ground and tells Adam, you'll no longer have limitless success because you were not created simply to pursue wealth and happiness. You were created to pursue relationship with me All that was given to you as a gift. Now as you work and you struggle, remember, I've given you everything you have. You do need me. Just because you've had success so far, that is not a sign of you not needing me. God limits his abilities as a reminder of his need. And then he takes his people and he clothes them in something more permanent, getting rid of their silly clothes, clothing them in something that will protect them. And then he sends them out of the garden, blocking the way to the tree of life, because to live in a world of sin forever is the ultimate curse. So graciously, He takes away their access to that. And from everything we can see in this very condensed story, Adam and Eve seem to respond fairly well to this. Life is hard. Life is hard. But they follow God's call on them to be fruitful and multiply, to expand the human race. Eve brings forth a Cain and all the, a child named Cain, <laughs> and all the while remembers God's promise that there's one coming who's going to deal with Satan. Cain doesn't live up to Eve's hopes. Instead, Cain refuses to trust God, whether it's out of duty or maybe a sense of self-righteousness, not sure exactly, but he brings an offering to God, and it's not one of faith. It's not one of trust. It's not one out of love for God. 
It's one out of love for himself. Just like that, we see the cycle beginning. Cain, uh, Cain refuses to trust God, and yet God comes to him. He seeks him out, calls him out of his sin and shame. But unlike Adam and Eve, Cain just turns away. He's not interested. He invites his brother on a walk, and as they walk through the fields, he bludgeons his brother to death. And God again comes seeking. Again, God comes looking for his people in their shame and their filth. Comes to Cain. Cain, where's your brother? And Cain scoffs. What do you mean, God? That's not my problem. God seeks him out in grace. He laughs. When, when did it become my job to take care of my brother? Like, isn't that your deal? I'm my own person. Why are you so hard on me, God? Why do you make things so difficult? Cain rejects God's grace. So God gives him his way. He says, you will wander the earth. You're going to be homeless, wandering, and the ground, the ground that was already difficult for you to cultivate from, but you did have success, you, you did have skill in this, it's going to be even worse. Things continue to go downhill for you. And now Cain panics. He's like, hey, how can you do that? Like, what did I do that would deserve death? And as you're reading this story, you're like, you killed somebody. That's what deserves death. <laughs> Cain realizes the reality of the natural consequences for his sin, but he still tries to blame it on God and say, it's not fair. This life that you've given me is too hard. It's too unreasonable of you to do this. God reaches out in grace again. No, people won't kill you. I'll stand as your protection. Even as you wander, even as you struggle. Cain, even as you reject me, I'm still your good and gracious God. And at that moment, as as God pours out his grace onto Cain, Cain turns his back on God and walks away from the presence of the Lord. As we watch Cain's family grow, we see the ultimate picture of evil in this world. In the midst of God continuing to generously pour out grace and blessing upon humanity, humanity throws it back in his face. Cain's family grows. He has children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Culture and technology continue to develop. Instruments are created. Bronze and iron are forged. The world is becoming an enjoyable, an even more enjoyable place to live in. All because of God's graciousness and generosity. Everything that exists, exists because he allows it. Cain has a son named Enoch. Enoch was the father of Irad. Irad, the father of Mahuja. Mahuja the father of Methushel, Methushel, the father of Lamech. Lamech becomes famous because he rejects God's gracious design for relationship. 
is the first man we see in the Bible who takes on two wives. He's not interested in living in God's grace and the way that God created him, the way that he designed him to be, the way that he could still function. He would not be forced to submit to God. And we see him rejoice in his pride and in his violence. He has no interest in hearing from the God who created him. No, he is his own God. And all will bow to Lamech. It doesn't matter who you are. He has total control, he believes. His wives must bow to him, submitting to his rule, sitting by, listening as he recounts his prideful acts of murder because of people who stood in his way. This isn't the end of the story. While Lamech is celebrating his wickedness, Adam and Eve are working to trust the Lord. They have another son. Eve puts her hope of God's promise in this son, Seth. Maybe he will be the one who will bring relief. Genesis tells us that at this time, even as Lamech and his family have pushed further away from God than ever before, at this time, people begin to worship the Lord by name. Adam and Eve, Seth, probably others, call out on this personal God who created them. And their family line continues, and hope continues. Seth has a son named Enosh. Enosh has a son named Kenan. Kenan has a son named Mahalalel. Mahalalel has a son named Jared. Jared has a son named Enoch. Enoch has a son named Methuselah. And then Enoch, who lives in trusting, good relationship with God, the Bible says he's taken to be with God. He's on earth no more. But other than Enoch, we see death continue to take people from this planet. Methuselah has a son named Lamech. This Lamech is different. This isn't like the Lamech from Cain's line. No, this Lamech is the father of Noah. And he's the man who says, like, my son, he's going to bring us relief. He's going to bring us relief from, from the ground that has become so difficult, from this life that is constantly beating up against us. My son is going to bring relief. And as we search through Noah's family line, we'll find many, many years later the birth of Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. And then King David, and ultimately Jesus. The story of Genesis 1-5 through is this. God is good. We are not. And yet, God is still good. And his goodness knows no limit. In Jesus Christ, the God of creation, the one who spoke and matter obeyed, he came to earth to identify with us. He came to experience our pain and struggle, the pain, struggle, and temptation that were caused by the mess that we made in this world. He came to live in that. As humanity continues to walk further and further from this perfect God, God not only continues to come seeking, whispering 
in his people's ear. But he himself comes to earth, lives in the mess that we have created. Ultimately, he humbles himself to death, the death that all of us deserve because we've refused to trust in God. He raises back from the dead. He gives us hope. Hope in another life in which we have the opportunity and will have success at trusting God, living with Him forever. Perfect unity. Perfect openness. He bled for our sins. He was crushed for our sins. He came to set us free, to give us new life. All of us have sin in our life. All of us refuse to trust God at times. Or maybe in certain areas of our life. You might think, at least my life looks a lot more put together than Cain and Lamech. Those dudes. And while I am thankful that murder is not your weak spot, murder is not the core of sin. The core of sin is unbelief. The core of sin is ungratefulness. Do you trust your maker? The good news is that even today, God's seeking you. Even today, God is calling out your name, inviting you into the life that he has for you. Will pride and self-sufficiency of Cain and Lamech mark your life? Or in humility, do you repent and turn from your sin? Pursue trust in God as he guides you and works in your life. And too often we have this view of God that has us our sin, and then God on the other side of it. And we're like, if I could just like clear off the top of the hill, like I could at least see him, we could start something. But that's not the picture of Genesis. Sin after sin. Sin in the context of like, why in the world would you do that, Adam and Eve? And God just keeps coming, keeps coming back to them. God's not on the other side of your He's he's whispering in your ear. Where are you, David? David, what have you done? David, don't let this sin control you. David, this isn't good for you. I love you. God doesn't invite you to clean up your mess so that you can find your way to him. He invites you to trust him just as he has always invited his people. Will you trust him? He has poured out love and generosity on your life. Nothing that exists, nothing you have exists outside of his divine creative power. He is good and he's seeking you. How will you respond to his voice today? Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness generosity and love that you you lavish on us. You pour 
out so much goodness to us. I pray that you would help us in our unbelief. I pray that you would help us see you more clearly in our lives, recognize the grace that you absolutely are pouring out in our lives, that we would turn from our sin and build our life upon you, trusting in you, knowing that you are good, you're all-powerful. Jesus' name.